Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. More information on all our sponsors at OverTheBall.com slash sponsors. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with me, Kevin Flynn and Dave Gallego. Today on OTB, it's kind of a slow time in soccer, believe it or not, right now, Dave. I uh, I actually read a great article uh, in the New York Times uh, this week about uh, the whole soccer versus football word controversy. And it seems to be like there's no controversy other than the English kind of being dicks. They just it's they say that it used to be called soccer, uh, which was short for association football. Uh, so they called it soccer. So the English came up with soccer and they came up with football. And then this article talked about how they they called it soccer uh, or football all the time. As soon as the NASL happened and Pele and Americans started playing soccer and calling it soccer because we can't call it football because we have our other football. The English got all they got all their knickers in the in the twisty panties and all curled up in their bum hose. So uh, they they wanted to take it to the U.S. So anyway, uh, did you read that article, in the New York Times? Uh, no, I didn't, but I I would love to chime in on that. All right, go ahead, shoot. All right, here we go. So American football, they use their feet. Other than running, of course, they use their feet maybe five percent, ten percent of the game. So they should change the name. Absolutely. They should. How about that? They should. Right. Maybe call it football rugby or rugby football or something. I don't know. Um, so we don't have a guest today, Dave. I thought what we would do is sort of just talk about uh, maybe some of the things that happened and occurred this year uh, in the world of uh, football, world football, as we call it, or soccer. <laughs> That's the, I love to piss off the English. I'm Irish anyway. So anything I can do to sort of tweak them will, always helps me. But um, there's a lot to talk about. So uh, what do you want to talk about today? We get started here. So I'd actually like to go in a different direction today because I think it would be very intriguing for our listeners to hear a little bit more about you and the annals of history as far as you're concerned, uh, because you do have an extensive extensive soccer history. And I actually have some questions that I'd like to chat with you about, actually. I love to talk about myself, Dave, as our producer, Ken, will let you know, and my girlfriend, Erin, would let you know readily. I love to talk about myself. In fact, you, I was actually got lectured this weekend from my girlfriend about um, not topping someone when they tell a story. Apparently, David Brooks wrote a book, another New York Times uh, writer, um, who wrote a book about basically being a good listener and a good conversationalist. And one of the things you're supposed to do is uh, ask good follow-up questions to a person's story. And then don't top their story right away. So uh, I, uh, I'm going to have a hard time with that, unfortunately. But we'll uh, we'll see. But when I'm talking about myself, Dave, that's uh, that's all right. I don't have to top myself. So so fire away. You fire know. So <laughs> so being in sales, I've discovered that the more questions you ask, the more rapport you build. So by the okay. end of, by the end of this interview, you're going to want to give me the biggest hug because the rapport is going to be. All right. Bursting at the seams. The rapport will be pouring out of our pores, it will be. So, uh, so, so, yeah, all right. So, so ask me anything you want about soccer. Yeah. I've had, I'm, I'm old and I've been around <laughs> for a while in this game for sure. Before it was really, before country was cool. That's all the time we have today. Thanks exactly. for listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all right. I'm just going to go down a litany of bullet points that, uh, that I, I find very intriguing about you. And, and okay. uh, before we delve into soccer, I, 
I want to go into some of the non-soccer items. So uh, right now, you are currently the, the writer uh, of a – is it a one-man show, Fear of Heights? Yep, yep. It's, uh, it's touring the country right now and just did a three-week run in L.A. It's going to uh, Florida and then it's going to um, New Zealand. You know, and then I'll come back to LA and then probably New York in June, I think. And, and what's the response been? How, how's it been? It's been really, it's been critically acclaimed. Thank, thank goodness. Uh, it's funny, my director, Tim Byron Owens, he said, don't read your reviews. And I said, why not? Did you read them? Is something wrong? He said, no, I haven't read them either, but don't read them because it'll screw you up. So I said, okay. So uh, I think three nights before we closed with our first LA run, he said, okay, read your reviews. And I said, why? He said, well, they're all good. So I, I got lucky. So all the big seven um, reviewers gave me um, uh, the thumbs up, So, which is what you need to, to sort of continue, go on the road, eventually move towards Broadway or off-Broadway. Well, you know what? There's now eight reviews. I saw it, and I liked it better than Cats. That's, yeah. Well, that's not saying much, Adam. Better than Cats. But uh, – yeah, it did yes. well in Ed- Edinburgh as well. So that's where it got started in Edinburgh, the the Fringe Festival over there. So that's kind of neat. Now, was this inspired by like the Billy Crystal one man show that was on Broadway? No, it, you know, I wrote it over COVID, um, and I did two things in COVID. I wrote this play, and I took up the guitar, and it seems like the plays turned out a lot better than my guitar playing. <laughs> I'll tell you that. But uh, I, uh, it's just a story I had to tell. I think a lot of people with my career, I was sort of on an upward trajectory as a television host and um, some life decisions that I made and some things that happened to me in my life uh, changed my my view, my uh, global perspective on my life and what I was doing with it. And, um, you know, I'm from a working class uh, background. My parent, my father was an iron worker. My grandfather was an iron worker. In fact, that's what the- No, 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 no. Don't steal my thunder. All right. What are you going to say? I know right, you're go gonna ahead. say, "Don't steal my thunder." All right, no, well, this is this is really, really, really cool. Well, so that's what the story's about, basically. My grandfather and father. All right, now speaking of your grandfather, yeah, Pat, Patty Flynn. Yeah, good, good Italian, Italian name. Yeah, Patty, Italian, yeah, exactly. Or Asian. I, I, I was yeah. one of the two. Your grandfather, Patty Flynn, was memorialized in the iconic Charles C. Ebbets photograph, "Lunch Atop a Skyscraper," and he's the gentleman sitting to the far right of the beam, high above the Manhattan skyline. Ah, is that, is that, is that, that, that somewhere? Yeah, that's him. That's my that grandfather. Is, so that's one of the most iconic photos of American history, and yeah. your grandfather is smack dab, not in yeah. the middle, but to the right. To the right. I and mean, that, that is amazing. Yeah, you know, we had always thought it was him. People said it was him. People said it was some other people. Um, we always thought it was him because it's his face. But the clincher was basically this documentary company uh, approached my father when he was still alive about nine years ago uh, with other photos. And they asked for something discerning about my grandfather. And they said, well, my father told them, well, he only has four fingers on his left hand. So if you look at that bottle that he's holding uh, in that picture, he only has four fingers. So that's sort of really what put it all to rest as to who it was. Because they used to say it might have been a man named Sonny Glynn, which sounds a lot like Patty Flynn. Um, but it turns out it's it's Patty Flynn. And, yeah, Sonny uh, Glynn had – a little fun fact. Sonny Glynn had six fingers. No, no. Sonny had ten, I think. I don't know. <laughs> But, uh, you know, when I was growing up, every summer we'd go to the Ironworkers picnic, which reminds me like the Brady Bunch, the meat cutters ball with Alice. But, <laughs> but um, 
it, we'd go there and my God, it was hysterical. Well, not really funny, funny, but like everybody was injured. You know, all these guys, every, <laughs> every guy would have a limp or their arm in a sling or an eye patch. It was like being in the middle of a, a pirate movie. Well, they could have filmed a, a zombie apocalypse movie with that right. uh, so, uh, live it, footage. They always got hurt. But so that was my grandfather. And he was, uh, he was a tough one. He was a uh, curmudgeon to be tough. guy, you know, and a man of few words. Um, Irish through the depression, you know, who knows? So, um, and my father was completely different. And so I was very fortunate. So part of well, what, go ahead. No, no, no. So I was going to say, so, and so unfortunately you, you apparently you never got to chat with your grand, obviously you didn't get to chat with your grandfather about that. Um, because that, that's fascinating in itself. Well, I talked to him, you know, he, he liked me. I was his, uh, he called me blackjack. Because I was his twenty-first grandchild, and they were a lot more wow. after me. So, um, but he liked blackjack. He thought I was funny, and um, you know, and he was like I said, he was a little quiet and dour, and you know, but totally different than my father. My father was just this gregarious, handsome, funny guy. Everybody loved him. Everybody feared my grandfather. Everybody oh, apparently he could throw a punch. Apparently they all could. So, wow. um, well, that's really that's really cool. Like I said, one of the absolute iconic photos. Yeah, piece of art. I, this country has known, and I'm sure everybody's seen it at some point. And if you're a uh, if you're a tourist to to in Manhattan, then you see it being sold at all the souvenir shops. So, right, uh, yeah, definitely very cool. And um, yeah, so you mentioned your broadcasting career. So you've worked for ESPN, ABC, and Fox. Yeah. And you know, I noticed that you you co-hosted a World Cup special with Brent Musburger. So, how is it when you because there, there are so few people out there with, with true soccer knowledge, mm-hmm. especially some of the, the the most well known broadcasters and commentators yeah, in American yeah. sports. So now, you, when you're with Brent Mus- Musburger, I have to assume he doesn't really know much about soccer, and he kind of just let you handle the reins, right? Well, he was a pro. Uh, he was he's incredibly talented, and I've t- talked about this before. Um, he was given dense pieces of copy that he would sort of walk and talk and memorize almost immediately. It was pretty amazing to watch. So I felt like he was a real pro and I just finished playing professionally about maybe maybe three, four years earlier and had been doing stand-up in the meantime. So to work with him was pretty amazing. I I, um, I learned a lot. He was a, a real class act and he was very humble in his knowledge or lack thereof of soccer. And so it. Um, he really hit up our producer, I think, for most of what he needed to know. But uh, I was doing all the some of the field pieces, and we'd host from a studio or the Rose Bowl or something. But um, he, he was a great guy. In fact, you know, um, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but when I first started stand-up comedy, my very first bit, something I won a competition called the Boston Comedy Riot with, was basically Brent Musburger interviewing Moses Malone and Dr. J., and you could never do the piece today because it was it would be totally racist. Uh, it's you know talking about how norms have changed. But I watched an interview on television with Brent interviewing those two gentlemen, and I just exaggerated it, and I made it so that um, Moses Malone was almost um, unintelligible. You couldn't tell what he was saying, and then I would have Dr. J interpreting what he said in an, in an extremely articulate manner. <laughs> So he said something like, you know, after I, I can't even do the impression now because you just you would be lambasted. But basically, Dr. J would say, well, what Moses has said is this is deprivation of justice, which, you know, he is utterly appalled. This is, you know, so um, uh, 
I did it. I told Brent about it, and Brent said, "I remember the interview." So I sent him that that interview, the the bit that I did it with his interview. So it was a very, it was very funny, and he was very sweet. So I enjoyed it, and the show was a big hit. It was called "The Road to the World Cup" on ABC yeah. Sports. So. That's great. Yeah. So I mean, Kev, you've uh, you've done so many cool things mm-hmm. um, within your um, within your brief time on this planet, because of course we all know that you're incredibly young, thirty. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so another cool thing is that you are the founder and executive director of the Nantucket Comedy Festival, which each summer um, you bring top comedic talent to Nantucket yep. as a fundraiser for for a year-round comedy education program serving Nantucket's incredibly underprivileged children. Well, so I'm glad well, that you're giving back to the to the community. That's uh, that's great. Well, this is you know this is a serious note on a funny note, but. It basically, you know, I would uh, I was going out to Nantucket uh, in between soccer seasons. There, um, I would go out there and um, and then uh, you know I'd go back to L.A. and then I'd come out to uh, Nantucket for do a play or something out there. And I started to do stand up comedy there on some nights on a Monday night there because it was dark in the theater. And it wound up running for thirteen years. It was sold out every Monday night for thirteen years. I'd go to the city and work on the weekends. I'd come to Nantucket on Sunday and spend till Wednesday there. Um, met my wife there, which was a whole nother debacle. <laughs> we'll see. But um, I really got plugged in with the community there, and I, uh, you know, I played in the summer soccer league out there, and I got to know, you know, a lot of the soccer people, obviously, as we all find each other. And um, so I spent time out there. And one of the things that had happened, I was in my Manhattan apartment and I saw it was the sixth teenage suicide in six years in Nantucket. And so they had, they call it a cluster. And I knew one of the kids who had committed suicide. He had talked to me, you know, uh, on the soccer field about stand-up comedy. Did I know Lewis Black? Did I know Jim Gaffigan? Did I know, you know, all these questions. And um, so I decided at that point to do something for the community that had given so much to me. And I decided to bring out a bunch of my friends, comedians, who would talk to the kids in this high school and the junior high school. Um, Because comedy is a lot like music. Kids think it's really cool and they'll listen. Uh, And they did. And the, the, the rooms were packed. They were just completely full. And I thought, well, why have all the guys out here and the women out here? Why don't we do a comedy show on the weekends at night for adults? So we had things for the kids at the schools in the day, and then we had uh, the festival at night, and that's how the festival was born. So, um, yeah. So then after a couple of years, I tried to, I was teaching kids how to do stand-up comedy, and then I thought, well, maybe let me try to formulize this curriculum. And so now uh, I put together a whole bunch of things that could aid and help uh, into a package to help teachers teach uh, this thing. And I'm working with Syracuse University. The, The festival is right now about formalizing an educational package for them. So uh, it's, it's uh, you know, and it, it actually came around the time when I was making different life decisions. I was, like I said, I was hosting three television shows at a show on... Um, Hold on, Ken, we can edit this whole thing out, right? Yeah. No, I'm talking about myself. Don't top me. <laughs> Don't top Not me. Own. I was hosting a show called Go For It on the Discovery Channel, and I had a show on ESPN called uh, Sports Figures, and I was doing soccer stories for them, as well as for ABC Sports. And um, and speaking of go for it, it was an extreme yeah. outdoor adventure show in which you swam with the sharks. And I'm not going to ask you about it because we only have about 10 more minutes and I do have to All touch right. on some soccer, but yeah, okay. you did swim with the sharks amongst other things. Yeah, and, and also, uh, 
No, you're done. That's it. We move on to the next question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, really cool is that you were in two of my favorite comedies, comedy movies, uh, The Heartbreak Kid with Ben Stiller oh, and I Me, love Myself, that one, yeah. and Irene with Jim Carrey. Both, yeah. both awesome, hysterical movies. So uh, be sure to look um, look out for, for Kevin in those in those movies. He was in other movies as well, but those two happened to um, those jump been, out of you. Uh, two of my favorite comedies. So, uh, yeah, no, great stuff, Kev. So, I did want to delve, of course, into your soccer history because there's really not a lot of soccer history in this country. So anything right. that existed within this country, I mean, of course, we had the World Cup victory over England back in the 30s. So, of course, that, that tops, the, tops the charts. But in terms of other things that have gone on, so you actually played in the MISL, the Major Indoor Soccer League. Is that correct? Yeah, it was the MISL, NPSL. Yeah, that was the league. That was the only left. And who did you play for? Did you play for Canton? No, the Canton Invaders. We hated yeah. them. Yeah, a bunch of foreigners. Who were uh, you? I played for Kalamazoo, and I played. Oh, for the Fort Kangaroos. The Kangaroos, yeah, very yeah. good. And and the Fort Wayne Flame. Okay. Uh, South South Florida Sun. I played for. But I, you know, I'll give you a quick chron you know chrono chronology of of my soccer career. I was in eighth grade. I was the tailback on the on the team, the high school, the junior high school football team. I played American football, um, and I remember I was riding my bike. That's the thing about you know growing up when we did, David. It was like I'd ride my bike. I do. I'd ride. I'd deliver my newspapers. Then I'd go to the, my you know football practice all on my bike. You know, no parents watching. No, any, you know, you just did your thing. So I came back from football practice, and I was watching one of my friends play soccer, and I was like, "Wow, that looks like a lot of fun." It reminded me of sort of pickup basketball, you know, where just like free flowing and on a run. And I played, you know, basketball as well. So um, the next week, I put shorts and a t-shirt underneath my football uniform. And after football practice, I stopped and started to play soccer. And I did that for a season, and I was like, I was really enjoying it. And there wasn't some cigar chomping guy on the sidelines calling out plays or anything. It was just like, uh, you know, you had to develop this skill. And and you know, so anyway. Um, I wound up starting to play soccer and the first year I played was, um, in eighth grade, which unfortunately is when most kids are just, you know, not playing anymore. You know, they're getting ready to hang up the boots, um, played in high school and I came out of uh, high school, uh, you know, it was all new England and all state in high school, got, uh, a scholarship at Boston university. Then the coach moved on. I lost it. I got uh, last minute. I walked on to the university of Massachusetts um, I wound up being the captain there for three years and, uh, got drafted, um, got drafted for in the, in the MISL, MISL and MPSL. Yeah. And I, th I think, um, you know, I was told I was going to get drafted by the Cosmos because I had worked at the Cosmos soccer camp in the summer, which is another whole story because I got to play with everybody, everybody that was a Cosmo as a, so, camp, right, so a camp counselor. Yeah. So, yeah. So speaking of the Cosmos, so it, well, yeah. actually backing, backing up a little bit. So when you were in eighth grade, so mm -hmm. being of European heritage of Irish descent, so there was no pressure from your parents to, to, to play soccer. Well, my grandparents were Irish. My parents were born here. So my father was so a big they were football. Americanized then. Yeah. They were Americanized. My father was a big football fan. And I, you know, I was sort of a, I was a standout football player. <laughs> I'm saying this shit about yeah, myself, yeah. but I was, you know, anyway, I was a good football player and, um, you know, that's the age, Dave, where like, if you're a good athlete, you're good at everything. It doesn't really quite matter. The same people are good at stuff. So anyway, it was, and my hometown was a big so uh, football town. And so it was a, a big deal 
when I, right. you know. Now, when you, so when you played, uh, so this, so when did you get introduced to the Cosmos then? Did you, did you work at a camp or did you try yeah. out for them? Uh, so I was in college and I was at a, the Hartwick tournament up in Hartwick, uh, New York. And and, had, historically, had always had a great college soccer program. Yeah, and um, I forget who he was. He was the LIU coach at the time. Um, uh, was it Diaz? No. Was, uh, Ramirez? Yeah, Ramirez, Arnie Ramirez. Yeah. Arnie Ramirez said to me, uh, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Connecticut. He said, you're too skilled to be from Connecticut. Where were you born? And I said, I was born in Connecticut. <laughs> so uh -huh. he thought I was a foreigner. So I took that as a compliment. And um, he said, hey, look, we have the soccer camp. We need players there to fill out. So I became a camp counselor at the Cosmos, the Beckenbauer, and the Pele soccer camps. So did, uh, did, did you actually physically, were you on the same field as Pele and Beckenbauer at one well, point? Well, that's an interesting question. I was about to answer it for you. So the guys, uh, basically what happens is, you have about four or five college counselors are there and this Cosmos would scrimmage every night. Uh, that's where they would scrimmage. And so they pull people off the sides and uh, about two or three weeks in, they pull me off the side and I get in and I'm playing with uh, Cabanas and Romero and uh, Pele wasn't there, but uh, you know, Bogisevich and Sanino and all these guys are out there. Ricky and Davis. Ricky Davis was not there anymore. He had gone to Team America by that point. Okay. I think. So I didn't um, – though, he's a good guy. We'll have him on the show too. I'd love that. Yeah. But um, so I got to play with these guys and I, I, I scored. I got in. I played well. So they called – I was in every night. They had me there. So it was an amazing um, – and then I tell the story about Pelé, which uh, you know, is a true story. But uh, you because know, I was like one of the only Americans there basically. And uh, all the Brazilians were saying Pele was coming. He's coming for Pele soccer camp. And so I asked them how to say Pele, welcome to my country, because he's the reason I'm playing soccer. You know, he came mm -hmm. over in 76. That was it. It was like, you know, it hit us all. And um, they taught me how to say in Portuguese, Pele, welcome to my country. And I practiced it all week. And when Pele finally showed up, we're all standing in line. And he came down the line and I said, Pele, puta que pariu, which means your mother's a whore. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. So the, the Brazilians had set me up. And so he looks at me like, what? And all of a sudden, everybody's laughing. And he goes, oh, my friend, you need to learn Portuguese. <laughs> but here now, so uh, after it was uh, unbelievable, he goes, he's doing a demonstration. And he goes, Where is, uh, where's my American friend? Goes, oh, there he is. Come. And so he pulls me out of the crowd to do the demonstration with him. So I did the demonstration with Pele. And, um, and then I sat down and then we broke for lunch and he said, American friend, come, come. I ate lunch with Pele. So it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. Oh, so that's, I, that's rarefied air. Oh, totally. And, you know, like uh, having a beer with Johan Naskins and, you know, just bizarre. But, you know, the one thing is I go back home and I have a picture of Pele and I were standing there and all my friends in Lily White, Madison, Connecticut are like, yeah, who's the black guy? They go, <laughs> who's the black guy? That's, that's the black pearl. That's, uh, that's Pele, man. The greatest player ever. Wow. That's, that's yeah. really a remarkable story. Again, yeah. Rarely rarefied air. I mean, Growing yeah. up in, in Long Island, I mean, the Cosmos were our team, and oh. it was unbelievable to go to, go to a, a jam-packed giant stadium and just watching these guys playing. I mean, when you have 77, 80,000 people there to watch soccer, I mean, yeah, listen, soccer players, I mean, when you and I were kids, soccer players were not exactly 
um, put on a pedestal. I mean, no, no. So you're, again, you're called, you know, my hometown, you were a soccer fag. That was it. So the soccer fag, which is, you know, my God, imagine kids saying that to each other today. Locked up, you'd be shut down. So it's a it's a terrible word. But I used to say, I can't believe you're even saying it on this podcast. We've just been canceled now. You realize that? I know. I, I you know, I, I always say like <laughs> adults talking. We can say that was a word that was actually used. Like my daughter got mad at me once. She said something that I said was racist, and I said, "What?" I said, "Honey," I said to her, "I go things um, were different. Like like um, the races and stuff. It, it, and I think it's in a better place now." But she goes, "Well, give me an example." I said, "Well." I remember watching The Love Boat when I was a kid, and whenever some a black woman got on The Love Boat, you knew that Isaac was going to get laid that week. It was like, <laughs> it's just how it worked. She well, that's racist. I go, it might be racist, but when I grew up, that's what that was the norm. So, so, so we can at least talk about it, honey. You know, can we? So I don't know. It's funny. That's great. Um, so when, now, when you played indoor soccer, you got drafted. You were you were drafted by Kalamazoo. Yeah, Kalamazoo. So yeah. now you're a Massachusetts guy, and now you're 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 getting the phone call, like, "Hey, buddy, you've been drafted. Let's go." And now you're like, "Kalamazoo is that in the United States?" Yeah, exactly. Well, I was supposed to get drafted by the Cosmos. Uh, Miguel DeLima, who was the, the director of player personnel, said, "We're going to take you in the first or second round." And I said, "Oh, wow, my God, that's great!" And they folded. So <laughs> you know, that's and they folded. So and what happened was the, the NASL, you know folded so all those players were still here in the country and then the MISL had shrunken um, and then it expanded a little bit then with the NPSL so there weren't really many opportunities for an American player coming out of college to get on a squad. Well Kalamazoo and New York are essentially the same thing so it was probably the same experience for you. Oh my goodness well so I came out of you know Massachusetts and Amherst up there so it was uh, you know I left college and and, um, did you, Kev? Did you need a? a I mean, because you weren't making millions of dollars. Did you? So you had to supplement your income, right? You had another job as yeah. an MISL MISL player. You had to supplement your income, right? Not, not during season. Like you know, I had played uh, once. My senior year was over, and, and I actually could have gone back for a fifth year, which I didn't. But um, I started to get. You know, I was on the um, uh, '84 Olympic squad for a while. Uh, I was in the pool of players. People ask, like, how close are you to, to the Olympics? And I'm like, eh, if about five or six guys came down with Montezuma's revenge, I would get a call. <laughs> but I got to tour with them. I was in the sports festival and, uh, you know, all these tournaments. So you're playing all the time. Um, I did not work during the season, but I had a job in the off season. Always. I would, I, uh, the first year or two, I lived in Westport, Connecticut and bartended in the day. And then I played soccer at night. It was great soccer. And I so when you the, um, and I go ahead, the sorry. Hartford, and then I I played for the you know I played for the Hartford Portuguese uh, and you'd get a couple hundred dollars and lunch and dinner playing with them and that's that's a, a comedy movie I got to pitch that to the Fairley Brothers because that whole world of that you know the German American club the Greek club the Portuguese club that you know that everybody they play they have these clubs that they the sole purpose of the club is to f- fund the players to play in their, you know, games. So anyway, with the Hartford Portuguese, we had a, had a great run. We talked about it last week. We went to the U S open cup uh, finals. Um, so I was making a couple hundred bucks, uh, you know, just on the ball there and then, you know, working summer camps as well. So you always have the ball at your feet basically. Yeah. And when you, so when you were with Kalamazoo, we have, we actually have to wrap this up in a little bit and uh, forgive me. Cause you know me, I can chat forever. Going. 
Yeah, yeah. So, what, so when you were with Kalamazoo, what was the travel schedule like? Because how far would you have to go? Obviously, there wasn't a huge budget, and you go into smaller cities like Kalamazoo. Yeah. So, what was that like? Did you feel like did you feel like it was a true professional experience, or was it uh, bare, bud, bare bones budget? Where you're like, all right, we're, we're playing in like a high school auditorium. It wasn't bare bones budget. Everybody had their stadiums, and it was a lot of fun. I think it was the only place where professional soccer was alive at that point was the indoor game. Yep. Um, and you know, like I said, even said that last week, like a lot of the guys who played are all head coaches of college te- teams now. Sort of kept it alive. I think um, it wasn't bare bones. I think I made about forty grand, and I felt like a rich college kid. And you know, I mean, so it terrible. Was, and what no, was the no. biggest crowd you played in front of? Can't. Uh, well, Canton would be sold out. I think they'd have like maybe four thousand people. It was the smaller sellout, right? Right, yeah, right. Which is the sellout. But that's it was a, it was a blast, cool. and they treated us really well. And you know what? I wasn't ready to stop playing when I got out of college. I really wasn't. Um, I needed to play a couple of years, so I played two full years there, and then um, I went to graduate school at BU, where I I was working on my master's for communications, and I was the assistant soccer coach for Neil mm. Roberts there. So uh, I got that's how I got into stand-up comedy because mm-hmm. the, um, Nickerson Field was right next to um, the uh, Stitches Comedy Club, and the coach and I were putting a lineup together, and uh, and that year we actually went to the final eight too. The team was good, uh, and I we were watching this open mic night, and the coach goes, "I think you could do that," and I said, "You know what? I think you're right." And so a couple of weeks later, I tried it, and on that was it. I was I was kind of hooked. Went wow. from soccer passion to uh, stand-up comedy. Wow, that's great. Well. Thank you for indulging me with, with all of uh, all of my questions. Um, and next week we are going to be chatting with Juan Guerra, the coach of the USL champion Phoenix Rising. The Phoenix Rising. To so talk a little bit about USL and the Phoenix Rising. Did you watch them play, or did, how did you know this guy? So with um, so I have Hulu, and when you go on the sports you, option, you should, you should see a doctor. <laughs> a shot of penicillin will clear that up, I, I think. I got the uh, so, hulus. I got the hulus. <laughs> uh, my old, my grandfather Patty Flynn told me about hulu. Exactly. I didn't know you could get it from a horse <laughs> or a skyline. <laughs> uh, so they have all these USL games. So I'm watching like Chattanooga play, and probably yeah. similar to like your days with Kalamazoo, you're you're seeing every game. So I would watch Phoenix and. It was just great. I mean, yeah. the USL again. It's bringing soccer to all these areas that, or all these areas that you didn't know had like, professional franchises. So yeah, so they won. Um, he's the youngest coach to win. I'm um, looking forward to chatting with him. So uh, that'll great. be next week. This is, you know, we were talking about it when we we talked to head coach Mike Noonan about basically a lot of players skipping college now, going to USL, going to you know MLS next, all these different ways and options that you had. Um, you know, I mean, it, even to go back to me and the stories that we were just talking about, I, I have found that, um, you know, all these ethnicities, which make America so great, they used to always bring over their own players. The Greek kids would be immigrating, the Portuguese kids would be immigrating, you know, and they would be the team. So you'd have a Greek team against a Portuguese team against a German team. And they really were those people. What happened was immigration slowed down for that, for the Europeans. And basically all they had was they had to have American guys. So it was a really great development league for some American players in college and after college. Um, but it seems like the landscape has shifted even again. Now it seems like there's lots of opportunities for players to develop. And uh, my only concern is sometimes uh, it costs money 
to be in these leagues for these kids. And so it becomes a middle class, uh, you know, economic thing too, where some of the poor kids don't get a chance to be on a traveling team. Can they can't pay the fee or whatever it is. And this is really a game, game of the streets. And I, I hope we can sort of not lose some of these players. Um, Cause when I, even when I played in the pros or in maybe like sort of a national level type things, we all knew each other. And every once in a while, there'd be some, some Hispanic kid from Chicago who's just like mind-blowingly good and nobody knew who he was. You know, he didn't go to college or something. So it was, he fell through the cracks. And I think we're starting to patch up those cracks, I think, with the U.S. men's national team, which looks a lot more like America now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So oh, absolutely. All right, well, so, good stuff. Yeah, so again, thanks for indulging me. If you just want to tell people how they can reach us. Yeah, you know, like, look, look, we're back here. We've relaunched the Over the Ball podcast. So please, if uh, you like us and follow us, a bunch of you have reached out to me saying they're, you're glad it's back on the air. Um, we try to bring an American perspective to this this world's game. Um, just teamed up with Dave here uh, after many iterations of this show on ESPN and Sirius XM. You got to ask me about that. That's That was a whole Peyton Place situation at Sirius XM. It was funny. Uh, very dysfunctional, but fun uh, in a weird way. Uh, but you know, like us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, you know, it really helps uh, drive our analytics, drives our numbers, and we'll be able to get better guests and better sponsors and uh, continue to bring this news to you guys every week, our opinions. All right. All right that's all the time we have today on Over the Ball. For Dave Gallego, I'm Kevin Flynn, and we'll talk to you next time on OTB. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. 